Welcome to the Jewish Policy Center webinar series. I am Shoshana Bryan, Senior Director of the JPC and your host. The stories this week just keep getting worse uh, as the details of the Hamas massacre in Israel are verified. As I said last week, this program can't keep up with the minute-to-minute news or even the hour-to-hour, day-to-day news. So our objective here is to provide a broader understanding so that when you watch the media, if you still watch the media, you get the reports and you have context into which to place them. Our guest today, David Weinberg, is the right person to talk about what's happening in Israel and also to talk about um, the Abraham Accords countries and Saudi Arabia, how they're responding both to the terror against Israel and Israel's response to that terror. I'm going to do the short form of our JPC commercial and then turn the floor over to David. The Jewish Policy Center is a 501c3 organization established in 1985 to provide perspectives and analyses of both foreign and domestic policies. You can find all of our work on our website, jewishpolicycenter.org. That's jewishpolicycenter.org. We support a strong American defense capability, close U.S.-Israel security cooperation, and missile defense. Most important today, we support the legitimacy and security of Israel against anyone who would deny them. And now more than ever, we support the efforts of the government of Israel and the IDF to defend the people of Israel and bring the perpetrators of the massacre and hostage-taking to justice. It's the right and the authority of the Israeli government to determine the parameters of its own defense. We do, as you know, sit slightly to the right of center. We advocate for small government, low taxes, free trade, fiscal responsibility, energy security, free speech, and intellectual diversity. It's a broad net that we throw, but at the center of all of our thinking really is Israel. And we come back to this time and time again. Um, Our guest today is uh, David Weinberg. Some of you have heard him before. He was with us in August. He is a government relations and foreign policy specialist in Israel, having made Aliyah from Canada in 1990. David is a senior fellow at MISCAV, the Institute for National Security and Zionist Strategy, and a fellow at Habit Chonistim, Israel's Defense and Security Forum. He's a defense, diplomatic, political, and Jewish world correspondent, uh, columnist, excuse me, for the Jerusalem Post and Israel Today. A prominent lecturer on public affairs, he has spoken in Israel, Canada, the U.S., and across Europe at synagogues, federations, advocacy forums, and universities. He's appeared everywhere in the media, you would think he should, and some places you might not guess. He has uh, he is quoted by a wide variety of international pubs- publications. David knows a lot about a lot of things, and we'll get to them. But one of the things that surprised me when we first met is that he is an accredited expert on Israeli and kosher wine, having studied enology at the London-based Wine and Spirit Education Trust, the world's leading institute for qualifying sommeliers. I bring this up because we need some normalcy in the world. There isn't a lot today. We need a little bit. So that's what David can bring us. David, if they don't ask you questions about that, I will. But for now, he's going to bring us up to date on some very, very important events that are happening in Israel and the context into which to place them. David Weinberg, the floor is yours. Thank you, Shoshana, and welcome um, to all listeners. I'll start with the personal, because this is a small country. Um, And both at times of both uh, tribulation and rejoicing, uh, it's personal. Everybody in this country knows someone um, affected by the massacres of last week, either they know someone who lives down south or someone who was chased out of their homes or someone that was hurt or someone who was killed, or someone who was injured, or someone who's missing, and perhaps being held in slavery and captivity uh, by Hamas. And then, of course, with 400,000 Israelis mobilized to the military on emergency reserve duty, everybody has someone in the army. For myself, Four of my sons and sons-in-law are currently on the front lines, one in the north, 
one in the south, one in the northern Samaria, adjacent to Janine, and one in the southern Hebron Hills. Um, holding the fronts and waiting for uh, the instructions sure to come to go on the offensive. Over the last 10 days, Israelis have moved from uh, shock, horror, and trauma, then to anger and outrage, and then to determination and resolve, determination and resolve to win this war and restore Israeli security and determination. And the, the outpouring of uh, emotion and of support for the national effort has been amazing. I'm sure you've all heard the reports uh, that 100 uh, to 130% of Israeli reservists have shown up for reserve duty, meaning that some fighting units have more men um, that they know what to do with uh, and that they know how to equip. And there are um, hundreds, if not thousands, of volunteer associations um, who've stepped in to help provide the IDF with all civilian uh, necessities to uh, for the swelling troop concentrations and um, to help their families uh, left behind. If there's one fact, one number, one statistic that you take away from this evening's conversation, one thing that I want you to remember, it's this. 600,000 Israelis have been made refugee, have become refugees in their own country. Southern Israel has emptied out. Northern Israel has emptied out. Some areas, because they were devastated by the Hamas attacks down south. Some areas, because the army has gone in and evacuated everyone, including, let's say, the southern city of Sterot. In other places, the public left on its own, knowing that a long strip along the northern border will likely become a battlefield. It already has to a certain degree. That's 600,000 Israelis who are living elsewhere. They're living with relatives. They're living in motels. They're living on in kibbutz guest houses. Uh, they're living in um, youth hostels. Uh, they're living in yeshivot um, and any other type of dormitory they can find. There's no school for the kids. Uh, the mothers are left behind with their kids. My own neighborhood, I live in a town called Nofayalon, adjacent to Modin in central Israel. For the moment, one of the safer places in this country. Uh, as we say in Hebrew, none of the Hamas missiles have fallen here. But this past Shabbat, uh, the neighborhood was packed. No men. There are 180 young men, sons and son-in-laws in this small neighborhood alone who've been mobilized to the army, but their wives and their kids were all here staying with their grandparents. We had the same situation and filling the parks with laughter. But it's an abnormal situation. It's an abnormal situation. It's an unacceptable uh, situation. Um, the first priority of any government is to provide security for its public. Uh, and uh, this government now has the obligation to lead Israel in war uh, to restore both security for the Israeli public and, as you hinted at earlier, Shoshana, to restore Israel's deterrence posture. Without that, all our other enemies will pounce, and we can forget about Abraham Accord-type peace treaties uh, with the with the Arab world. It is, it always was, the image of Israel as a strong country, as the strongest country in the region, strong as a, militarily, strong in terms of its intelligence capabilities, strong in terms of its economy, strong as a society. It was that picture of strength which drew Abraham Accord countries into partnership with Israel, and which 
I believe, will yet draw Saudi Arabia uh, into a open strategic partnership with Israel as well. But first and foremost, and by necessity, um, Israel must crush Hamas. What exactly crushing Hamas means? And how do you define the crushing of Hamas? That's a separate conversation. We could perhaps get into that. But first and foremost, Israel must win. Victory here must be complete. Um, Israelis understand that. I think they have a very realistic understanding of what that's going to entail. And the cost, the price that it's going to come at, both to us and to Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, but there's no one in Israel that I know that's looking aside um, or looking for a way out. The determination to win is paramount. Everybody from left to right understands how necessary that is. That's my opening broadside in response to the questions that um, you posed, Shoshana. If we break it down and step back and look at it in a purely analytical from purely analytical perspective, it's obvious that Israel is facing here uh, many challenges. Perhaps the greatest of them all is the possibility, I feel the likelihood, of this becoming a two-front war, where has the Iranian-backed Hezbollah military, which sits in Lebanon, <coughs> enters the fray, posing a significant challenge both to the Israeli military and to the Israeli home front. Hamas has shown itself to be a deadly enemy, but ultimately it's a small enemy. Hezbollah is a much bigger monster. Hezbollah has not 5,000 or 15,000 rockets aimed at Israel, but 150,000 or upwards of 150,000 missiles aimed at Israel, many of them precision-guided missiles supplied by Iran and targeted using Iranian satellite maps um, and more. They could hit unless Israel in a first strike knocks out um, their most advanced weaponry, they could hit every power station, every airport, every water pumping station, every critical infrastructure in this country from top to bottom and from bottom to top and from east to west and back over again. Um, in which case, we won't be making any Zoom calls um, and much worse. The challenge is significant. It's clear to me that one of the purposes of President Biden's visit here yesterday um, is to deter the Iranians and their client military Hezbollah from entering the fray. That's why there are two aircraft carrier groups here and a third one on the way. That's why there are two squadrons of American strike aircraft um, in Amman. That's why the commander of CENTCOM is sitting in the Israeli uh, military war room uh, with uh, Israeli commanders. I don't believe that the American military is going to fight for Israel. I don't want. Israel does not want the American military to fight for Israel. Israel has never wanted that. Uh, but um, to the extent that the United States, the heft of the United States, or what's left of the heft of the United States, can deter or help deter Iran from expanding this conflict, uh, that's a good thing. We all know that Iran has not been exactly afraid of the United States for several years running now. Um, and in fact, the Iranians are massing troops now on the Iran-Iraq border, a way of threatening back at the United States, threatening the American troop presence, both in Iraq and in Gulf countries, as well as in uh, eastern Syria, west um, in uh, eastern Syria. So none of us know how this is going to play out. And as I said, I uh, suspect that we're going to end up with a uh, two-front war. Moreover, we all know that they're going to be bloody wars because the military assets of both Hamas and Hezbollah are deeply embedded 
in civilian population uh, concentrations purposefully. So that's true of Hezbollah, as well as the Hamas in Gaza, which inevitably will mean significant numbers of civilian casualties. As you all know, Israel has warned the public in northern and central Gaza to flee, to evacuate the areas that Israel is likely going to enter in a drive to crush Hamas. Reportedly, there are hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who have heeded that warning, but there are hundreds of thousands of others who either haven't heeded the warning or have been prevented from fleeing by Hamas itself. Uh, Israeli media has reported of Hamas units going neighborhood to neighborhood and confiscating everybody's car keys so that they can't drive away and flee to southern Gaza. So they saddle up on their donkeys, those who have them, and try to make the journey southward. But it does mean that we're in for a long ride. What I'm telling you is buckle up. This is not going to be a short military campaign, and it's not going to be a pretty military campaign. We had a small picture last night of the type of outroar and outrage that develops internationally uh, whenever it seems that a civilian population concentration is hit. I'm referring, of course, to the explosion outside the Baptist Hospital in Gaza City, which Hamas immediately published as a mass casualty event caused by an Israeli missile strike. It was neither a mass casualty event nor an Israeli missile strike, but that didn't stop the New York Times and almost every other publication from the world from nearly gleefully running banner headlines about the Israeli massacre um, in Gaza. It took hours, as expected, for the Israeli military to do its homework, to triangulate uh, satellite photos and missile launch vectors in order to prove decisively, I think, that this was not an incident caused by Israeli ordinance. And some Western governments and some media have walked back their initial accusations. But the pictures and the initial headlines remain. And Israel may face this situation over and over and over again in the coming weeks, and I would say even months. Does Israel have the diplomatic maneuvering room uh, to get the job done? Does Israel have time? Does Israel have the space um, from Washington and from other Western capitals um, to get the job done sufficiently? Uh, will Israel be allowed to win? Those are good questions. I pray that the answer is yes, but I cannot say so uh, with certainty. Can the Israeli Air Force and the Israeli military handle the two-front war that I talked about earlier? Again, the Army has planned for and trained for this for many years, but it's going to be rough going. The last point I'd like to make um, re re relates to the broader ideological dimensions of the conflict uh, we're facing. Um, the broader ideological dimension of the conflict is that this is radical Islam against the West. Um, something that will become even more clear and acute, I think, if the conflict, in fact, expands to additional regional theaters and if when Islamic terrorism hits America and or Jewish communities around the world. I'll say in Hebrew, chas v'shalom, God forbid. But the, the warning signs are there and the possibilities um, and the risks are real. Uh, there's not a Jewish community in the world today that is not on edge, that has not uh, tightened its security protocols. Um, and it's not just Jewish communities that need to be, that need to beware. It's really every major um, symbol and site of 
Western um, civilization. And therefore, you have to ask the question, might this be an opportunity? Do we have uh, bold leadership in Western capitals to capitalize on this opportunity to once and for all strike a blow at the octopus head of the radical Islamic juggernaut, that being, of course, Iran, uh, to once again assert a Western alliance with the Sunni Arab world that puts Iran um, in its place um, and that resets uh, the global playing field um, in this regard. Israel's battle with Hamas is an important part of that, but it's only part of that. And um, I would like to know, I would like to believe uh, that uh, world leaders understand uh, the stakes here. To his credit, and I'll say this specifically in our conversation, to his credit, President Biden has been saying all the right things. And I believe he showed um, true empathy, not false empathy, true empathy and true solidarity uh, with Israel this past week, especially during his visit um, yesterday. And he has backed it up with uh, concrete moves, some of which we've discussed and others will yet become clear in the coming days and weeks. But at the same time, you know, there is the usual prisms that we're familiar with that mark the uh, liberal democratic world and the Democratic Party in the United States in particular, concern for maintaining and preserving the so-called two-state solution and a desire to see the Fatah movement of Mahmoud Abbas reinforced when this is all said and done as a counterpoint to Hamas. <laughs> and what I fear will be a desire when this is all yet and this is all said and done to once again cut some grand strategic deal with the Republic, the Islamic Republic of Iran, not truly to confront um, and cut Iran uh, down to size. So yes, um, I have concerns about, um, uh, as I've had for a long time, about the long-term directions of policy um, coming from Washington. And even in this situation, which, as I say, could be the opportunity for a strategic uh, overhaul, could be wasted um, if Washington falls back on uh, stale paradigms. Uh, when the fighting uh, is done and over with. So those are my uh, those are my feelings, those are my concerns. That's how I see the situation. Um, it's a scary um, and infuriating time here in Israel. I haven't touched on the barbarity of the Hamas-led massacres. I think everybody on this call has probably been exposed to that, and it is disheartening and dispiriting and ultimately not good for the war spirit and determination that Israel needs to dwell on all that too much. It's bad enough as it is that every day there are more dead Israelis identified. Uh, this morning, body of a six-year-old child was found burned to death in the attic of a home in Kibbutz Beri. He had been missing for the last 10 days. There are still Israelis missing, over 200 believed to be kidnapped into Gaza. Um, there are hundreds more whose bodies have not yet been identified because they were so badly mutilated or burned. We have enough of those revelations every day that I don't want to dwell um, any more on that in this call. What Israel is going to need in the coming weeks and months, as I said, is not only its own stamina and determination, but also the stamina and determination of uh, Western leaders. And first and foremost, President Biden and his team in Washington to stay the course, to see this through to stomach the horrible pictures we're all going to see on our television screens and know that there's a grand strategic purpose that is just and right and necessary uh, in crushing Hamas. 
I don't know if you've enlightened us, made us feel better, made us feel worse, David, I'm not sure. But you have prompted a number of questions from our people. So, so let's go to that. You have a mixed bag view of President Biden's visit to Israel. I share that view. So the question from a listener is, how is President Biden's trip viewed by Israelis in general? What is the public attitude toward the president at the moment? Uh, Biden would win an election here in Israel if the election was held uh, <laughs> tomorrow. Um, his um, his remarks, um, his um, uh, his body language um, was powerful, um, and as I said, reflected what Israelis felt was genuine support and genuine understanding of the uh, of the scope of the uh, of the atrocities here and the fact that the jewish people and jewish history cannot let this go by the way the wayside jews in israel cannot be hit by eyes unscrupulous the nazi like killing squads of eastern europe which is what we saw on the gaza border 10 days ago um Jew the jewish people cannot 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 accept that um, and I think Biden made it clear that he understood it. In fact, there are many commentators in Israel who are saying that the stirring rhetoric we heard from Biden yesterday was so much better than anything we've heard from Israeli leaders over the last test, the last 10 days. I don't want to go political here, but it's hard to be impressed with Israel's political, military, and intelligence leadership after what happened um, 10 days ago. There were so many, there were many heroes. There were many courageous people who fought the terrorists um, down south, senior commanders who threw themselves into the fray. Great tales of heroism. But our political leadership, let's just say that Biden um, impressed us all. So I don't want to get too political either, but let me ask um, a sort of threefold, twofold political question. First of all, does the fact that you now have an emergency a coalition that includes uh, Benny Gantz's party, which was very much opposed to the Netanyahu government before, change the future of politics in Israel? And marry that, if you would, with the thought that after the Yom Kippur War and after the Lebanon War, Israel had commissions of inquiry, um, which I think most people thought were serious commissions of inquiry, not trying to whitewash anybody or anything and after which some prime ministers and other people in Israel had to resign. So the questions are, how's it going? Is there likely to be such a commission and any chance that the government will collapse? Not in the middle of the war, I suppose, but any chance that the government will simply have to dissolve itself? So my answers are yes, yes, and yes. Um, yes, it's a good thing that two former IDF chiefs of staff Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot have been added to the uh, war cabinet. Again, this is not a national unity government. It's a uh, inner war cabinet, which is added to the two senior figures or two senior figures from the opposition. Remember that the official opposition, Yair Lapid's Yeshatid party, has refused to join uh, the war cabinet, as has uh, Victor Lieberman's party. It's a good thing because Israelis need to feel that the country's leadership is somewhat united going into war. It's a good thing because uh, Netanyahu's credibility and um, support uh, from, let's say, close to half the public was shot to heck even before the war started because of the disputes over judicial reform that have rocked this country over the last 10 years. It's a good thing they've come in the cabinet. Does it fill me with overwhelming confidence? No. Uh, these are the same generals who brought us the failed policies of the last 20 years, beginning with the disengagement from Gaza, uh, further withdrawals in northern Samaria, uh, the policies of trying to manage and sweet talk Hamas, thinking that Hamas was deterred. These are the same people who brought us the failed policies of the last 20 years, but that's true of the entire Israeli military intelligence leadership, this is what we have to work with. The answer to question two is also yes, because um, 
there will be major commissions of investigation, like the Agronaut Commission after the Yom Kippur War and the Winograd Commission after the Second Lebanon War. And it, these commissions are going to decapitate um, Israeli political, military, and intelligence leadership, and they're all going home, beginning with Netanyahu and all the way down to the chief of staff, the chief of the Mossad, the chief of the uh, Israel Security Agency, the Shin Bet, uh, chief of the Mossad, the chief of military intelligence. The scale of um, the collapse here is, is simply too staggering for anybody to emerge unscathed from this, and therefore there will be a political bloodletting, and there will be new elections, and Israel will have a different government. Who's going to emerge uh, as Israel's next leader? Your guess is as good as mine. Um, I, Benny Gantz certainly is hoping and believing that by entering, by showing national solidarity and leadership and entering the emergency cabinet, he can help lead Israel to victory. And he will pick up the pieces and be the political beneficiary. Um, but I don't think there's a single person in this country who believes that Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, can survive politically, even if he leads Israel um, to victory. You mentioned the word victory. So we have a question. Actually, three people or four people or five people have asked exactly the same question here, which is unusual. What does victory over Hamas look like? What does victory in the Gaza Strip look like? That's an excellent question. Um, and it is being debated um, as we speak um, at the highest levels of Israeli uh, political and military leadership today. How do you define the collapse of Hamas? What does that mean? What's the picture of victory that Israel can achieve? Is it... Japanese-style surrender, unconditional surrender, end of World War II? Um, is it just the elimination of, let's say, I don't know, 100 or 10,000 Hamas uh, military chieftains? Is it uh, the obliteration of Gaza, Gaza City? Um, is it the emptying out of the Gaza Strip with 2 million Palestinians pushed into the Sinai Desert, something, of course, which scares the heck out of President Sisi of Egypt, and that's why he's objecting to every such proposal. What is uh, the picture of victory? And I don't have a clear answer for you. I'm not sure Israeli leadership has a clear answer for you, but I will give you one answer that I've heard repeatedly in recent days. Uh, you know, this was a topic of conversation between Biden and Israeli leaders yesterday. According to all reports, Biden wanted to know, what's your end game? What are you driving at? Um, what is the Gaza Strip and the Palestinians who live there going to look like on the day after? The answer he got in the Israeli cabinet yesterday was, we're not dealing with that now. It's not our problem right now. We're focused on winning a war. You never know where the war is going to end up. Things that were unthinkable at one point may become feasible two or three months from now. And guess what? It's not really Israel's problem. Our problem is the security of the citizens of the state of Israel and the strategic deterrent stance of the state of Israel. And that requires that requires um, decisive outcomes. How decisive? Who rules Gaza afterwards? Who picks up the pieces? Who takes care of the Palestinians? If there's any left there, not Israel's issue. Let the international community start thinking about that. Let the international community start planning for that. Uh, maybe UNRWA should set up uh, offices in northern Sinai already. Um, what I'm saying is that to a certain extent, while this issue is being debated and discussed in Israel, it's also being rejected as a 
topic of immediate concern and discussion for Israel. It's a distraction from the need to prepare our troops for battle to win in a significant fashion. What happens afterwards? What exactly is the picture of victory that Israel will achieve? Hard to tell at this point. I know that's an unsatisfactory answer that I've just given you, um, but I think I've given you an accurate reflection of the thinking in Israel on this right now. I think that's an important thing for us to understand because as we went through Afghanistan and we went through Iraq and we went through other kinds of wars, people did ask, how does it end? And so you have to ask yourself, how do you know when it's over? How do you know when you've won? But I think you've made an important point. Um, priorities for the Israeli government, that is not one of them. But you're, some- asking, you're asking me about exit strategies. Israel was still handling its entrance strategies. And that's probably fair enough. So let's go to what's happening on the ground. There's a question here. Um, I have to say that in the United States, we have not focused on the fact either that Americans were killed or that Americans are hostage in Gaza. This, oddly enough, does not seem to motivate people in this country as much as it should. But the questioner says, uh, what can you tell us about the efforts in the tunnels and elsewhere in Gaza to rescue the hostages? Is this the reason the ground assault hasn't really taken full force? Short answer is no, there's nothing I can tell you about that. I have no knowledge of um, where the hostages are, um, how they're being held, um, what negotiations might be underway for the release of some of them. There have been scattered and unconfirmed reports of German and Egyptian-led discussions about getting at least some of the women and children out in exchange for insane numbers of Hamas terrorists in Israeli jails. I don't believe there's going to be any deal like that. Um, And no, I don't believe that Israel is delaying its military offensive um, in order to save or rescue hostages. And I don't want to expand on that, um, but the Israel's military offensive will go into gear when, at the time and place of Israel's choosing, um, despite whatever horrible situation hostages may be in. Going back then to a, um, no, let's go broader first. We've had someone ask about Israel's relations, not just with Saudi Arabia and and the UAE. The Abraham courts probably are on hold. Maybe the Saudis are on hold while they figure out who they want to be friends with and who they want to be enemies with. But you have Jordan and Egypt, and I'll leave off the PA for the moment, being extremely unhelpful right now. Uh, What's going on with Israel's relations with two countries with which it actually has peace treaties? Okay. First of all, I think it's important to know and recognize that the experts I know, um, and I know a few people who are true experts in this field, the experts I know say that uh, on social media, in the Arab countries you've mentioned, there is an outpouring of sympathy and understanding for Israel. Um, Sympathy and understanding for Israel Um, uh, not just horror and shock at the extent of the Hamas um, massacres, uh, but a true desire to see Hamas crushed. There's no love lost uh, between the Sunni Arab countries you've mentioned and Hamas. Hamas is the Muslim Brotherhood. President Sisi's government overthrew a Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt. Muslim Brotherhood is is an enemy of uh, the Saudis, just as ISIS and Al-Qaeda were. So there is um, significant segments of Arab public opinion that's actually on Israel's side in this war. Having said that, the response of Arab governments, all the governments you mentioned, has been disappointing. 
Uh, it's been the old, usual um, ritual condemnations um, of Israel um, and weak condemnations of uh, the Hamas um, atrocities. And there may be um, a real threat to the um, uh, stability of Israel's peace treaties uh, with Egypt and Jordan, as well as its newer peace treaties with Bahrain, Morocco, um, and the UAE, uh, because these countries are afraid. They're afraid of their street. They were strong enough and determined enough, and they had enough reason to determine that their strategic interests made aligning publicly with Israel worthwhile. At the same time, um, they are afraid of the anger uh, of their own publics and find it difficult um, to stomach some of the scenes they've already seen and the scenes they will yet see much more of, <laughs> of destruction and devastation in Gaza. So um, Israel has a um, big job to do in keeping its relationship strong and on the conversation ongoing uh, with these countries. Uh, I hope that um, uh, calm uh, and clear-minded thinking um, will prevail, but it's definitely a concern, especially if, as I said, this becomes a two-front war and a lengthy one. At the end of the day, does Iran, or not Iran, do the Mullahs have to go in order to have a peaceful region? Is the ultimate problem here the fact that uh, Tehran does what Tehran does and supports financially and, and militarily who it supports? In my mind, absolutely, yes. Absolutely correct. Uh, the grand shadow hanging over this region for a long time now has been Iranian hegemonic ambitions. Um, it's terroristic tentacles that reach deep into Africa, um, as well as across uh, the Middle East and into Asia. Uh, and not to, and of course it's nuclear bomb uh, program that so, has been the case for for many years there was a time when there was reason to believe that a determined western stand including uh, cri crippling sanctions on Iran could turn things around could bring about a if not a change of heart uh, among the ideological Moas of Tehran, then at least an understanding that they had to pull back. That hasn't been the case for several years now. I don't think the Iranians are truly afraid of the West. They may be rational actors, but they're also viciously rational actors, and um, they feel they're on the rampage and on a successful rampage. Ultimately, Iran needs to be cut down to size for this region, uh, and I would say even for the world, um, to enjoy uh, stability and security. So here's a depressing question. Then is Israel only doing um, mopping up the small fires while the big fire burns? Whatever Israel does, if it doesn't affect Tehran, uh, it seems like only a holding action. Um, that's not accurate. Um, we have a phrase in Hebrew, para para, which translates literally as cow, cow, meaning one stage at a time. Uh, you can't bite off the entire Middle East and chew on it simultaneously, at least Israel can. Uh, we're going to have a difficult enough time crushing Hamas, not to mention crushing Hamas and Hezbollah, that would be a crushing blow to Iran, which has counted on Hezbollah as its forward stocking horse on Israel's northern border for more than two decades now. Iran is a global security threat. That's what the Security Council and collective security was supposed to be all about. Um, but you, when you have a bifurcated international system, when you have the Russians and the Chinese with vetoes on the UN Security Council, uh, when you have a dispirited and disillusioned West that is does not want to fight, um, 
you have a difficult situation. Uh, Israel can't right the world on its own. That's true. And I guess this is the place to mention that the UN embargo on Iran selling ballistic missiles and ballistic missile technology expired this week, and no one was willing to step in and stop it. And the United States didn't say anything either. So yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. Let me give you a last question before we do a wrap up. Uh, listener asks, Israeli Arabs, there have been some heroic, truly heroic Israeli Arab citizens of Israel working these last two weeks. Um, in general, where do you think the Israeli Arab population stands? So up to about maybe three years ago, I was an optimist. All indicators about the Israeli Arab community were positive. They were integrating more in Israeli society, um, introducing more Hebrew language studies in their schools, better numbers of matriculation, going to university, um, advancing socioeconomically, and um, even becoming uh, proud citizens of Israel, not just second-class citizens of Israel. But at the same time, apparently, burrowing beneath the surface uh, were the winds of radical Islam, um, which we now see in the rapid growth of the Islamic movement in Israel. There are two separate movements, the Southern movement and the Northern movement. We see it in their rabble-rousing and dangerous um, activities in and around Jerusalem, especially on the Temple Mount. And most shockingly, we saw it during the last round of conflict in Gaza when Israeli Arabs, hundreds of thousands of them, took to the streets uh, to riot uh, in support of Hamas and uh, to impede the activities of Israeli security forces. There is a real concern that in a uh, two-front a war situation with Israeli troops needing clear access routes to the southern and northern fronts. <clears throat> Israeli Arabs could take to the streets in violence to block uh, critical arteries in this country. And in fact, the army is ready to deploy forces inside Israel um, to push back um, at that if it develops. So. Um, it's a it's a matter of real uh, concern. So, David, we've sort of come to the end of our program. And last, I always try to end on an up note. I ask people for a, a positive response to, to my last question, which I'm about to give to you. Last week, I couldn't do it. Last week, I could not ask my speaker for a positive response because I didn't think I'd get one. He surprised us, however, and gave us a positive response. So I'm going to ask you a question the response to which I suspect will indeed be positive. And that is, what is our next great Israeli kosher wine buy? Okay, um, but I'm not gonna go there without um, <laughs> trying to give you um, a picture of optimism. And, and the picture of optimism comes from the strength of the Israeli people. What I talked about earlier in this conversation of the um, the spirit of volunteerism, the willingness to take risks in order to protect this country, um, the courageous battlefield stories that we're now hearing alongside the stories of, of horror. Uh, this, the Israeli people is not going away. We've come back here after 2000 years of diaspora and dispersion in order to stake our claim to this land, in order to rebuild the Jewish people in its ancestral homeland, in order to create wonderful life-saving and inventive technologies and share them with the world and make a contribution to the world. That story is not over. No Islamic radical army is going to push the people of Israel off their path. And if there is a path to victory, it comes first and foremost from the public of Israel, if not from its current 
leadership. Uh, I believe that deeply. I'm not just saying that. And I want you to know and believe that as well. As for wine, uh, the uh, this was a very good harvest. 2023 was a good harvest. Uh, we had some pretty extreme heat waves, but uh, they ended before harvest time. And uh, what I hear from Israeli winemakers is tremendously optimistic. Of course, the wine's being harvested now. The quality grapes being harvested now won't hit um, your shelves as bottles of wine for, I'd say, another two years at least, um, if you know how these things work. Best buys now are a series of um, Rhone Valley or Mediterranean varietals. Um, Israeli grape, grapes grown here that come from Spain, Italy, Portugal, and southern France. Not the classic Cabernet and Merlot grapes we're all familiar with, which come from Bordeaux and Burgundy. There's a whole world of Israeli wines being made from these other Mediterranean varietals that are young, that are fresh, crisp, um, and easy to drink in hot climates such as ours. Look for them uh, in your uh, specialty stores and you will find biblical echoes and prophetic messages in every glass of good Israeli wine. That is a good note upon which to say thank you very much. <clears throat> Excuse me for an enlightening, if not altogether happy, uh, perspective on the Israeli home front, the war, the Arabs, all the things we need to know. Um, when we watch our media, which, as you say, stinks. Um, and I would use this moment to point out, too, by the way, that the New York Times photograph, which they ran under the headline about the Gaza hospital, was not a photograph from the Gaza hospital. So they picked up a photograph that showed the kind of damage they wanted to show. And what worries me is that a lot of people just look at the pictures and don't even read the story. So we've got a lot of work left to do. I want to thank you for helping us do that work. Thank you for being with us. And to our viewers, next week we have Hussein Abdul Hussein, who is going to talk to us about the Arab world and what they're saying and what they're doing. David Weinberg, thank you. Thank you. God bless America and God bless Israel. God bless America. God bless Israel.